Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We've had an old saying that I know you've heard before that describes a particular kind of experience, especially focusing in on details while ignoring the larger picture. And that saying is, you can't see the forest for the trees. Consider this piece of art created by William Vreeland, who was a manuscript illustrator living in the 14th century. At first glance, his work is, is confusing. It's a picture of King David in an open-air chapel, surrounded on the page by vines and flowers and things. Some of the flowers, as you focus in on the, the, the cropped image of this picture, some of the flowers are deep blue. Others are a brilliant gold. Their leaves literally sparkle. And go back. Oh, all right. There we go. One more forward. There, because you got to see what's on the picture. If you don't see what's on the picture, this isn't going to make sense at all. So some flowers you can see are deep blue, and some of the golden vines kind of sparkle off the page. Your eyes are captured by a couple of birds, if you can find them, and then some things that look like strawberries. There's so much to see that for a moment your eyes kind of get lost from what you should be focusing on. You start tracing the maze of vines and flowers, catching a bird here and a berry there. And something like this can happen when you're reading this chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 11. One can be drawn by the strangeness of Paul's words here. Paul is discussing the status of Israel and God's plan of salvation. And at some points, Paul speaks of the hardening of Israel's heart. He even claims that God has rejected his people. At other points, Paul is speaking of the salvation of Israel, their election and being beloved for the sake of their forefathers, he says. But when you read this passage up close and somewhat out of context, his words can be so confusing. They have even led to some theologians arguing that Paul lays out here a foundation for anti-Jewish sentiment and that the Christian church should follow suit. Since God has rejected Israel and chosen us, the Gentiles, the church, well, we should live in the same way, some theologians say. Other theologians have used these verses to argue for some future day when God will restore the Jewish people and to fight today for that time when Christ comes. Yeah, this concern for Israel gets expressed in all sorts of political action and rhetoric and continued strife in that area of the world. It's been going on forever. But has God rejected Israel or not? Will God save Israel? Or not? These are the questions that come out of the text. But even more troubling is this picture the verses can give you of God. God somehow seems unfaithful at one time calling these people to himself and then rejecting and then calling some other people, us Gentiles. What's to keep God from rejecting us? Can God be trusted? When he makes these kinds of promises, when he lays claim to people, any people, Jew or Gentile? Well, today I want to spend some time on this controversial text before us from the book of Romans and the issue of Israel's relation to the promised land spoken of in the Bible. 
With the news around the world lately focused mostly on COVID, we seem to hear less and less about that area of the world. But things are still going on. It remains a real issue even today. The existence of Israel in the first place in the Middle East, surrounded by the Palestinian countries, the extent of her borders, her independence, may be some of the most explosive factors in world terrorism today, and certainly the most volatile factors in Arab and Western relations. If you're aware of what's going on in Israel right now, it may seem that they're a mere image for what's going on here in the U.S., because they've got social unrest, They've got election controversies. They've got quarantine challenges, the weight of decisions to close their border, lockdowns. But I want today to move beyond the contemporary news. I want to spend some time in this challenging letter that Paul wrote to the Romans regarding how God sees these people that the Bible calls his own chosen people. If you know anything about the history of that area of the world, the Arab roots and the Jewish roots in this land go back thousands of years. Both lay claim to this land, not merely because of their historical presence there, but because of divine right. Their sacred scriptures, each each of them, say that they have a divine right to the land. And I'm not going to try to flesh out a final solution to this issue. Many smarter people than me have tried But I will try to lay out some biblical understanding that might guide us so that we can talk about that area of the world and see what we can talk about in terms of peace and justice and what that might look like over there. When we talk about Israel, it does matter what we say and what we do and how we think, especially in the time of elections. Elections is past week, elections coming up in November. Because you know what? You are the constituents that the politicians are supposed to be listening to. And especially in this religiously supercharged areas and issues like like Israel and the Middle East. You and I need to know what to say. We need to know how to pray. And we need to know how to talk to others about these challenges that honors the truth, not just the truth as someone else has said the truth. So for all those reasons and the reason that God is very much involved in this situation, we need to talk about it in the context of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Now what we see in Romans 11 is that Israel as a whole, that is an ethnic community of people that's lasted for centuries and centuries, does have a root in the covenant promises made back in Genesis to Abraham and his descendants. Genesis chapter 17. God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring and after throughout generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And then coming back to Romans chapter 11, Paul says, if the root is holy, then so are the branches. He's saying, as long as that two-way covenant is intact from both sides, God remains steadfast to the people, and the people remain rooted in God, everything's going to be okay. But what happens when you hear these interesting and questionable passages like this from verse 28, where Paul is saying, as regards the gospel, they, Israel, are enemies of God for your Gentile sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. 
or saying forefathers here again, corresponds to verse 16, which I read already. So the promises of the forefathers imply that someday in the future, the whole tree, all the Jews, all the branches will be saved. Someday. Because verse 28 says, for now, Israel is enemies with God. As regards the gospel, that is the good news that belief in Jesus brings to us, they, Israel, are pitting themselves against God. This is what Jesus said to Israel in John chapter 8. He said, if God were your father, you would love me. Wow. Because Jesus is the litmus test whether anybody's religion is to the one true God. But Israel as a whole doesn't love Jesus as God's son, doesn't love Jesus as her Messiah, which they've waited for for thousands of years. So they are, for now, enemies of God. But don't get too complacent about that, because you and I were also born enemies of God, and our human nature would love to go back to that state. Isn't it something in this world that I'm sometimes more afraid of what Christians will say and do than unbelievers. If an unbeliever comes to me and starts talking, I can kind of relax a little bit, right? Because the unbeliever is not going to misquote and misuse God's word to try to support their actions or denounce their opponent's stance on something. An unbeliever is not going to claim that they know more about God's truth than the other side does. Oh, but Christians... We do that all the time. Even those who are loosely connected with our God, like the Mormons or Jehovah's Witness or the Unification Church, very loosely connected with God. But even to the mainline denominations, even Lutherans and Catholics, you've always got to remain on your toes around them because you never know what they're going to say or do in the name of God. But when verse 16 says, if the root is holy, then so are the branches we take that to mean if God chose the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for himself, and set them apart and made a covenant promise with them, then someday, after this present disobedient time is over, their descendants are going to return to God, return to Jesus, and become, as you and I are, God's set-apart and holy people. As Paul repeats the new covenant that was foretold by the prophet Jeremiah in the 31st chapter of his book, originally from Jeremiah, but Paul kind of lays it out here as well. Paul says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sin. And you and I, while we might have questions about these statements, what we have most of all is faith and trust that all of this will be made right in time, in God's time and not human time. But I want to get back for a moment to this issue of the so-called promised land part of the inheritance and the salvation that someday all of Israel will receive. And if that's the case, what does that say about Israel and their divine right to that portion of the Middle East today? Well, in developing an answer to the challenging question, I just want to consider a few truths out of Scripture. Truth number one is that God chose Israel from all the people of the world to be his own possession. 
Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And the land itself was to be part of that inheritance that he promised to Abraham and his descendants back in Genesis 15. Which, of course, creates a huge rift between the Islamic point of view of God's covenant and the Jewish and Christian point of view of God's covenant. You see, Islam would say that Ishmael, Abraham's older son, is the offspring mentioned here. In fact, if you read the Quran, the Quran puts Ishmael in place of Isaac as the one to be sacrificed by Abraham, their father, on Mount Moriah. But the Jews and Christians say this land is dedicated and destined for Isaac's line. But even that isn't so simple. Because the promises made to Abraham, including the promise to the land, will be inherited as an everlasting gift only by true spiritual Israel, not a disobedient and unbelieving Israel. This was plain all the way through Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. Take just one example. There's a terrible list of curses that God promises to bring on the people if they ever break his covenant. It says this in Deuteronomy chapter 28. You who were as numerous as the stars in the sky will be left, but few in number, because you did not obey the Lord your God. Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number, so it will please him to ruin and destroy you. You will be uprooted from the land you are entering to possess. Then the Lord will scatter you among all nations, from one end of the earth to the other. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your ancestors have known. So God laid it out pretty well. And what he said came to pass. So throughout the history of Israel, their covenant-breaking and disobedience and idolatry disqualified them from the present divine right to the land. But we've also got to be careful not to infer from this statement that the Gentile nations, the, the Arab nations surrounding Israel, that they somehow have a right to judge and attack Israel because of these statements. You see, God's judgments on Israel are much different than human judgment. So the promise to Abraham that his descendants will inherit the land doesn't mean that the Jews inherit that promise. But someday it will finally come to be that the true Israel, the Israel that keeps covenant with God, then they will obey. Then the new land, the promised land will be theirs. And when Jesus was with the Jews, we hear from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the other writers of the New Testament they tell us about what Jesus did. He satisfied the prophecies that the people had been waiting for. He spoke with authority. He fulfilled the Old Testament promises. He, he taught and preached everything that they already knew about the coming Messiah. But they rejected him. And this was the most serious covenant-breaking disobedience that Israel had ever committed in all of her history. That's why Jesus told in Matthew chapter 8 the parable of the tenants who killed the landlord's son when he came to see about his harvest. So friends, what the whole broad stroke of scripture tells us is the truth that the state of Israel today should not claim a present divine right to the land. But they should also not be ousted and maligned as many of her opponents would say. 
So when tensions rise, we as Christians and citizens should seek a peaceful settlement based on not divine rights, but on the international principles of justice and practical feasibility in that area of the world. The implications it has for those of us who believe in the Bible and trust Christ as our Savior and the Lord of history is that we should not give blanket approval to everything the Jews do today or the Palestinians do today. We can't give blanket approval to either side. We can only approve or condemn according to the biblical standards of justice and mercy among people. We've got to encourage our representatives to seek a fair handling of all of these tough challenges that come from that area of the world. So I'll leave you with a final word for today. I like the way that the New Living Translation describes this next verse, Romans 11, verse 17, where it says, But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel, have been broken off. And you Gentiles, who were branches from a wild olive tree, have been grafted in. We've been included in Israel's promise. So now you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in that rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. So Paul is saying that Jewish believers and Gentile believers will someday inherit the promised land. But recall that all-important word that Jesus spoke when he was questioned by Pilate. John chapter 18, Jesus is saying, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Yeah, it's true. As Christians, we don't take up the sword to advance the kingdom of Christ. We wait for a king, all right, but it's a king from heaven who will deliver us by his mighty power on Judgment Day. And in that great day, Jews and Gentiles who have treasured Christ will receive what was promised. The faith that you and I have is not based on world geography, even though Christians would rightly want to go. And those of us who have gone to that area of the world have been truly blessed. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. But you and I, we understand that the battleground is in our hearts and in the hearts of those who follow Jesus. The battleground is in the hearts of those who still must hear and follow the call of their creator towards him in the new heaven and the new earth. I pray that this message has been not only informative, but also that it will be a blessing to you as you seek to speak to folks about Israel and the nature of their covenant relationship with God. I ask these in Jesus' name. Amen.